0: Hi, I'm Enrico Orsini, um, Education Scientific Lead at EHA, and I'm here today with Professor uh, Robin Foa to speak uh, about um, Philadelphia positive uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Professor Foa, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Okay, well you said who I am. I'm Robin Foa, I am Emeritus Professor of Hematology at the Sapienza University in Rome, Italy.
0: So Professor Fa, you dedicated your lecture after receiving the Jose Carreras Award at the EHA Congress this year 2023 to Philadelphia Positive ALL. Um, Where does your interest for this pathology come from?
1: Okay well uh, this is a long story in fact because uh, uh, not being a kid anymore I've been around for quite a number of years and uh, you know, when we talk about the Philadelphia positive VLL in more detail, it'll come up that uh, the approach and the management of this disease has changed dramatically over the last, I would say, 20 years in general, and then more specifically, more recently, to an extent now, and we could discuss this, I'm sure, in more detail, that we can think of uh, managing many, possibly most, adult patients with PH positive LL, Without chemotherapy and transplant, and I'm sure we'll go into detail about this. So, where did it start? Well, I've always had an interest uh, in, uh, I would say, in immunology and in immunotherapy over the years. And in fact, uh, uh, during a lecture for the executive uh, world, there's something I will cover. Uh, and uh, I will show that I started working on not on neoplastic cells, but say on the immune compartment. Many, many years ago, I mean, this started when I was working in London at the Hammersmith Hospital uh, with Danny Katowski, who I'll quote during a lecture because he passed away only six months ago and I was very close to him and I worked in those days on T and then K cells in chronic lymphocytic leukemia so in a lymph and a chronic disease, not an acute, which is something nobody was interested in You worked on the leukemic cells which are B, but there's an interest in the accessory cells and from there, many studies we've done over the years. We, we used interleukin-2 to treat uh, acute leukemias. We did gene transfers, transducing cytokine genes to try to stimulate the host immune system against the tumor. So the whole story of uh, immunotherapy has been very interesting for us and uh, we've worked a, a lot about that. And uh, I was involved also in the development of bispecific monoclonal antibodies, and particularly blinatumomab. So I think that is the whole tie and then it's all, let's say, add up and tie up in the pH-positive ALL story.
0: And so how did all this come up to the pH-positive ALL? What is the situation for this disease treatment today?
1: I think the background is that pH-positive ALL, I'm saying this for the younger generation, was in the old days the worst hematological malignancies. And I always used to say and say to the younger generation possibly it was the worst cancer you could get because the prognosis in those days was dismal and the only chance was an allogeneic transplant if at all you could reach a transplant but you got to respond to treatment to get to a transplant. That was the first point. This was before the tyrosine kinase inhibitors came on the scene I'll come back to that in a minute. The second point that we have to keep in mind that Philadelphia was ALL is the most frequent genetic lesion in adult ALL, and it increases with age. So while it's very rare in children, but in adults starting from 18 up, it increases, but it's low in young adults and increases, and then in, uh, over the fifth patients over the age of 50, 55, about or even more than one out of two B-lineage L carry the Philadelphia chromosome or the BCR-ABL. So it's frequent. That's the other important point. So, the turning point was what? Was tangerine kinase inhibitors. I mean the story goes that we've changed the natural history of chronic myeloid leukemia with the Martini first and then with second and <coughs> third generation TKIs. And we've learned that with TKIs the, the prognosis of, of CML has changed dramatically. And now many of these patients can uh, have a life expectancy which is similar to a normal population without match parade without CML. So that is a revolution induced by learning the mechanism and I'll show a slide in a presentation of how we learned from the Philadelphia chromosome to the TKI and that's a fantastic story. So carrying the same genetic lesion, it was at some point obvious in the data and CML to transfer TKIs to to Philadelphia positive LL. So my interest goes back to that, and in fact, we were just about the first to start this, and uh, it's interesting, because we tend to forget this study for myself, that we started using TKI and induction without chemotherapy, only with the TKI and steroids, no chemotherapy, back in the year 2000, so that's a long time ago, and uh, we decided to do that, and just to make a bit of history, uh, I think uh, it's nice to recall that we started discussing this opportunity with an old friend who also passed away recently, who was Michele Baccarani, who has had a very important role in chronic myeloid leukemia. And we're talking with him at a meeting somewhere, I can't remember where, but outside the meeting, we started thinking, well, why do, based on the CML data, why do we think of using Imatinib in P. So that's how it started, and we set up the first protocol for Philadelphia portavillez frontline for elderly patients. Why elderly? Because we had to decide not to give chemotherapy, and that was a bit unusual in, in acute leukemia, particularly LL with a poor prognosis. But being elderly, many patients did not put up with chemo, and they only received palliative treatment. So it was ethically acceptable, and in fact, all ethical committees approved it, to give only Martin and in patients over the age of 60 with no up age limit that was a starting point and that showed us that we could treat patients and to our surprise all patients went into remission I'm saying remission, not cure, but went into hematology remission and we had no death in, the, in induction despite the age of patients. The oldest patient was 89, so. so that's that if you want to know. And that's how the whole story that then continued with second generation TKI and uh, third generation, so we've done the we've done... But the point I would like to stress is that in all our studies in Italy, the corporate study group through the GMEMA, all our studies have never given systemic chemotherapy induction. It's always been a TKI plus steroids induction. One this very important...
0: Only for, elderly pa-
1: patients not for all patients? No, for all patients. You're the all first one, as I said, was yelled. then. Based on the results of that, we obviously did it for all other patients, 18 years up. And many studies were 18 up to whatever age, no age limit because there's no chemotherapy, you give a pill orally, that's the other extraordinary point. So the bottom line is that we've used all inhibitors, alone with steroids, and virtually all patients go into remission, between 94 and 100%, that is and with virtually no death in induction, so this was the bottom line of the story. One very important point is, and I'm saying this because, you know, EHA is a very big community, the world is very vast, we're not all the same. So to do all this, you have to identify the BCR Abelson okay. and diagnosis immediately to start the TKI. You can't find it a month later. That means they have to get chemo. So you have a window of opportunity because for ALL patients we tend to give a one week steroids. And then one week, if you do a study to find the philadelphia chromosome on the BCR Abelson, then you start it. But you have a window of a week, 10 days, not more. That's important practical point over the world. How doable is this? So that is a starting point uh, with induction. With this
0: induction, so you have the TKIs. You get everyone in induction are these, in remission are these remissions durable? Do you need to add chemotherapy? Okay. You need okay. to have maintenance.
1: Yeah. Okay. So what has happened is that we did the induction with the TKI and steroids, and after that either it was left in the studies to the centers or we gave chemotherapy and transplant. So that was the treatment was, it's not that we remove completely chemo at that point point. Then we come to the final story which is a step forward. At that point it was a TKI and still in induction but then going to what you said the question what do you do after the end of induction or they cured and I said at the beginning they're not cured some maybe but so after that, patients usually, it depends on how old they are and how uh, fit or comorbid they are, they generally get chemo and many get transplants. So that was, we, by giving steroids alone, you reduce the toxicity of steroids plus chemo. That was the point. Because many other groups around the world, and we did it too in the first study. In the first study, we added imatinib to the backbone of the chemo that we did at that time, but with intensive chemo. And we found we had to amend the protocol because it was pure toxicity. And this has been seen in other studies where TKI has been added to what was a conventional treatment, was intensive chemo. So the bottom line of that is that the combination is too toxic. So many groups use the de intensified chemo plus TKI, which is better, but you get less toxicity, but you still have some toxicity. We decided not to give chemo, but then you have to consolidate. So chemo was for consolidation and even transplant. So that was. Then things change again maybe. I don't know if that's what you want. I don't know. I, I, up to you. There was There, there is
0: something different from yeah. chemo that we can mm-hmm. give after TKI?
1: So TKI started the treatment. So the next step, going back to what was a bit of my history, was could immunotherapy play a role? And uh, you know the story goes that uh, I mentioned the bispecific monoclonal antibodies and blinatumomab which as everybody knows a by specific are target CD19, which is expressed by leukemic B-cells and CD3 that activates the host immune T-cells. So it's form immunotherapy. On one side you target leukemic cells, the other T-cells of the patient activating them. So it's a form of immunotherapy. Now we'd been working with Blina for many years. And Blina was initially produced by a small company in Germany called Micromet and then was acquired by Amgen. And I tried with Micron many years ago to get Bleena, and I didn't manage because they, they, it was a small company, production capability was limited. Then when Amgen took over, it changed, and that's how we could start the protocol with the Bleena So the story got has been used for relapsed patients, a B lineage, because it's C19, approved. And then it was the first monoclonal antibody approved to treat minimal cerebral disease. So that for the Philadelphia negative, and yes, also for Philadelphia positive. So what will happen is that uh, we managed to get Blina for our last finished study, completed and published study in Philadelphia, Port, front line, all other patients, 18 up, again no age limit. And this was based on induction with Dasatim steroid. And consolidation what with Blina tumor. So it was targeted treatment followed by immunotherapy. And the, and the patients received, all patients, irrespective of the degree of response to dasatinib. Even if they're molecular negative, all patients received a minimum of two cycles oblina and they could go up to five cycles. The primary endpoint of the study was the rate of molecular responses after two cycles of blena, so induction consolidation. The study was published in October 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine and it showed that uh, virtual patient 98% went into remission, and that we had met at the primary endpoint of, and we obtained 60% of molecular remission after two cycles of There's no chemo. Now, interestingly, subsequently we found that the rate of molecular response increased further, 70, 80%, with more cycles of That's something that hadn't been reported further. So, that was then we. New England asked us, for, asked us for an editorial. So we did a review article that was published last year in New England on a manager of And I'm happy to say that we just submitted uh, 10 days ago, the update at more than four years of the DIALBA study. And the data looking extremely promising. I can say, it's not accepted yet. So, uh, but I can say that at four plus years, the overall and disease-free viral curves are extremely good, and the range 75-80% at four years. And I can add that half of the patients, particularly those who became MRD negative, so that's underlying the role of MRD monitoring. This is all done centrally in our studies, all done centrally, all by quantity PCR. A patient who become MRD negative or doing extremely well, a patient becoming early MRD responsive or So far we've seen no event. Now of these patients, half of them have never gone to chemo, never gone to transplant. They've only received induction rotation and further TKI. Now in the study, the study finished with the primary endpoint. So every center was allowed after consolidation to decide whatever they thought best for patients. But all the data were accumulated in an ancillary GMAMA study, so I have all the information which have been put in a new paper that we sent out. And uh, patients, it's good to say that the large majority of patients who obtained a molecular response were not transplanted. Luckily, probably we discussed it with the centers. In fact, uh, of the patients who were not transplanted, 93% were molecular responders. Patients who are not in MRD negativity, the large majority were transplant and are doing very well. So, transplant impact if you're not MRD negative. This is all in a new paper. I'm saying things at 80%, not 100%, because we don't know the fate of the paper yet. Uh, I think the other point, I think two points to say the, MRD, the role of MRD. Because yes. that's the you're, next
0: question, so you
1: can okay. go ahead. Okay, so <laughs> we hadn't arranged it before, so it just. <laughs> But Enrique knows hematology, so it makes life easier. MRD is a key point, and I think this is something we should stress because if we want to manage well ALL, it might be different than other diseases. CLL may be different, but this is an acute leukemia. If we want to try to cure, cure as in English, which is cure, as an ALL patient, you have to obtain MRD negativity. That does not mean that if you negative, you may not relapse. It does mean that if you have positive, disease is still there. How do you do the MRD? That's the other key point. So, uh, we all feel in Europe at least that the best uh, and most sensitive way is by quantitative PCR. <coughs> and there the are strict uh, uh, instructions for this. There's a Euro MRD uh, consortium that works, we are part of it, and you have quality controls, etc., etc. So, we feel that is a standard and it is the standard. Now there's interest in digital droplet PCR, in NGS, but these are all experimental. We've worked a lot on digital. The standard for us is quantitative PCR so far, and that should be done. If we look, that's the key point, and that's important. I mean, we have a drug approved for MRD, which is Blina, so MRD has to be tested well, so that's a very important point. The other point I would add in the biology is that uh, you have to do an extended biological workup of the genetic profile at diagnosis because patients with a complex genetic landscape, landscape patients that we call Icarus Plus they have Icarus Plus out of the genetic amount these patients do less well but they do less well if you identify them so again go back to the role of a laboratory for optimal management and EHA is vast so it covers the world so I mean this is a message has to come through if you can do all this, then you can optimize treatment and so that I think is really the, the message comes up. So that is where we are now, and I think it's an important point.
0: So, would you say that at the moment, uh, basically, of everything you have said until now, TKI and plus immunotherapy with blinatumomab can be? Standard care for every patient with pH positive ILL, including the one with genetic alteration negative like Icarus Plus.
1: Okay, now in theory, yes. I mean, in a theoretical and ideal world, my answer would be a flat yes. You have to identify them quickly, yeah. at the key point, we said it, it's a must. Then you give a pill now then, which pill, which TKI, because in the world the only one that's worldwide approved for the frontline treatment is Imatinib. Okay, give Imatinib if you have nothing else. I'm not saying one's better than the other, probably they are, but it could be that Blina nullifies this effect. This is a wishful thing, we don't know, we haven't firm data yet. It could be that any TKI is good enough, but now the reality is that EMAT is the only one approved worldwide. After then, you have to give the pill. If, if, now, does that, is uh, not approved, that's the problem. So, it's approved for MAD positive, not everywhere. EMA has not approved for MAD positive, FDA has. So, the countries that go follow FDA, yes, the countries in Europe now, which is a big limit, unfortunately. So some countries can give it. Now, in an ideal world, that's why I started saying this, I would certainly say the standard is TKI plus Blina. The problem is that very few can do that combination. Now, in this respect, we now have an ongoing study, which is a follow-up of this dialba that I mentioned, which is well down the road. And this is the first ever randomized study. And this randomization is done to get approval from the authorities. So the experimental arm will be for the third generation TKI ponatinib and blina Experimental arm, the control arm will be imatinib plus chemo. And because we want it to be approved for everybody, the other combination. It'll be two to one for the experimental, and there'll be a crossover for safety reasons. And patients will only go to transplant. Oh, so this in the protocol only go to if they have the additional genetic I'm mentioning. They remain MID positive. Or after they have some, the Blina. After the blina. If okay. they are so if the negative don't have additional genetic, they will not be transferred, even if they're nineteen year old and have a sibling donor. So this will be the first time that he will formally prove that he can avoid it. I told you that patients who avoided it well, but it wasn't in a protocol. This will be in a protocol and so the, the study is already enrolled, it's a 236 page, it's a very big study but we already enrolled a 106 patients, so we hope to finish it next year. So that will probably redefine the management of the portal. If I may just one second say that I I travel a lot with these data I mean, and I still see in many parts of the world giving a TKI plus intensive chemo. I mean this is to me, it's really unacceptable, because you're losing patients. Yeah. Many patients, even in remission are transplanted. And there's a transplant-related mortality. So this it's hard to accept. At least give a TKI, either without chemo or with very mild chemo. But there's no reason to give intensive chemo and TKI. And I still see this in many parts of the world. So if I may just make a plea on this, I think this should be completely avoided. This is, we can really try to, as long as we diagnose them immediately, so the message are diagnose immediately and within one and this should be done because for CML this was done in the old days, not maybe by molecular but at least by the cytogenesis, then give a TKI. If you want to give chemo either in induction, give it mild chemo or else consolidate later. First put patient remission and then consolidate. If you can give Blina, but most patients, most centers can, could not give it, that's even better because you can avoid chemotherapy. But then you have the laboratories for MRD. They have to be available and they have to be standardized and certified laboratories.
0: Thank you very much. It was very clear and very passionate.
1: Thanks. It's, a, it's a nice story for an end of a long hematological life, because I think, the, I mean, as I said earlier, uh, the younger generation, they in the war, they say, ah, the patient is lucky as a Philadelphia Porter Villeal. I said, for us in the old days, this was a death sentence. So this has to be underlined. The patient who came, she was 70. I remember very well because I saw her that day. and I spoke to her and she was, I know the Philadelphia Porter. She was terrified, not terrified, she was worried for her husband. I remember very well this lady. Worried for her husband because... Very often males are less strong than women, so she was right for him. So I told her, listen, things are changing. Now we will give you a pill and we treat her with hematinib. That was 20 years ago. 21, 21, She turned 90. I don't know if it's this year or last year, alive. So, so she lived 20 years having diagnosed a diagnosis of the day of her 70th birthday. If I can't say,
0: this is what I like about hematology. You have this.